Adrian Spataru, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here today and to uh, be talking with you about your experience in building AI products in small teams and as an individual. I think this is very interesting. And I think there are many people out there who are thinking about maybe having their own company at some point, developing their own products and similar. And I think your experience with the two companies you have you built and the experience that you gained by Prior well developing many different AI systems and doing a lot of research as you did yourself, I think this will be, will be very beneficial for our listeners. But maybe before we start talking about those details, maybe you can start to explain a bit about your background, how you came to machine learning and artificial intelligence, what motivated you in part as well to choose this path. And then I think it would be very interesting as well to talk about the two companies you built. So my background started, I guess my passion for machine learning started quite young. So when I was 12, I actually wanted to become a hacker. But once I reached the university level of like how IT security is actually done, I got quite bored of that. I felt like mm, that's not for me. And machine learning came my second pet peeve, you could say. Mm -hmm. well, how I started machine learning is mainly doing Kegel challenges. So I because in at least back in the day, there were not even many companies doing data science and material the fact relearning data science was quite limited. Mm -hmm. Like back in the day, Andrew NG machine learning course was kind of the only thing easily available for people. And uh, yeah, I participated in some Kaggle challenges, tried to learn how machine learning is done in a more practical way. And then also through experimenting a lot, doing some projects on my free time and also doing a master's on focus on computer on computer science and machine learning in general. Mm -hmm. I've developed more deeper skills in that. It also helped that I also worked part-time during my studies at No Center, which is a AI research slash um, research, but also commercial project company. Mm -hmm. So consulting and research. And uh, I developed, I think, a lot of my skills over there since I had the opportunity to work in various projects from getting cows pregnant to predicting <laughs> like financial fraud. And yes, those two are very related. You can use almost the same algorithm to take both of them. <laughs> okay, interesting. Now, yeah, and I think after that, during my master thesis, I tried to start the company. And back then I was already experimenting with a lot of ways to think about products I could make. And my master thesis, unfortunately, has nothing to which I built. But through the master thesis, I've explored things which were not related to my master thesis, just so I get very deep knowledge in machine learning. Mm -hmm. More specifically, I wanted to master the skill of reading a paper and trying to implement it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was doing a lot in the past, I know, four years. Because I think that's how you really get a deep understanding of deep learning models. It's not enough to conceptually read the paper if you also implement it. Or, okay, if there's a code available, go at least for the code and to understand every line of code to understand how the model actually works and train a model based on that. And yeah, by getting these deep learning engineering skills, I then later found ways to make a startup out of it. Mm -hmm. Maybe I think it would be interesting to know at this point, as you already said, before you started your first startup and as you were said, you were already or like during your master studies at the time thinking about creating a startup. Can you tell a bit about what your thoughts were at that point? What in part motivated you to do so? And were you inspired by something in your environment? Or was there like some kind of thing at the university? For, for me, it's quite easy to answer. For me, it was, you could say, oh, I was passionate about starting a business. For me, I see it a bit more different. I see like, if I continue working in this field, sure, I could maybe go to Zurich, get a job at Google, get like 200K euros, and that'd be a life. And maybe I will work quite a lot, I would assume, because maybe they will squeeze any inch of energy from mm -hmm. through that money. That money you don't get for free. Or B, I do my own startup, and maybe I will not manage to be successful with it. But at least I can have a chance to become, let's say, financially independent or have some financial freedom. Mm -hmm. Now, you could say, okay, why didn't you, you can take the middle path, which is also fine. Like just stay in the Austrian ecosystem, go up the hierarchies until you a CTO or a tech lead 
and you know live a decent life that's also an option i would say but someone who's very motivated very ambitious i didn't really fit was quite fit for me and i was like okay good i just try to do online stuff it's gonna be harder but it's definitely more worth it and i think i will have a life without regret pursuing this path than doing something else because you know you live only one life and I always try to think, would I regret if I didn't do this? And I would have regretted. So that's why I'm always trying. Even if I don't manage to be successful, is the path I always want to strive to take. Mm -hmm. I understand. Makes sense. I can definitely relate to this. And as you already said, then it was then already during this time, during your studies, that you let's say started your first. I I was a bit uh, incomplete with my story. So entrepreneurship, this decision about going like big tech or startup i already decided younger age mm-hmm. so during university actually before university in austria there's something called like matura project mm-hmm. um so i um i did i went to a handels academy which you could say is like economic high school and there uh, as my project because we were also did some coding there we worked together with some students of colleagues of mine, we build like a system which analyzes traffic in a city. So basically you put the camera in roundabout and you could see, you could count how many cars exit and enters a roundabout. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you could have traffic analytics for your cities, especially cities who don't have big budgets. So for example, if you're in a village, you don't have $2,000, $200,000 to buy like the minimum requirements to buying all the setup, the servers and the cameras to analyze traffic. What you most likely going to do is going to pay a student who will take a clicker, which a clicker is like just like press and mm-hmm. count, count cars. You do it like, let's say once every month and you get like a rough estimate of how traffic runs in the city. Mm-hmm. So there already had my first, let's say, taste of entrepreneurship and also uh, building, let's say, products, you could say. But I wouldn't say it was a product. It was more like a prototype in that regard. Mm-hmm. I understand. Okay. And and by making that decision back then, I always tried to try to start a startup. And most time it just failed because I hadn't had all the skills. Yeah, maybe have some skills in, let's say, graphic design, but I didn't have the skills for software development. So it was always like a struggle to make something work. And one thing which actually kind of worked was a project called Pentalogos, which was like logo generator you may mm-hmm. see those you just describe your company and it will generate a logo for your company more or less what it does it just tries to find like a template mm-hmm. or like an icon relevant to your business maybe a font which could be relevant for your business and some colors so mm-hmm. not amazing logo but it's a non-business and i i build this with a friend of mine the the thing is is that the market was extremely competitive and and also, it wasn't really I. It was like, yeah, okay, you were doing some recommender system, you could say, but it wasn't like fancy deep learning. It was just like whatever you learn in recommender system 101, that's all you needed to build it. Mm-hmm. So what we noticed that is the market is very hard to enter because all the key, like if you want to Google, I want like logo generator. You mm-hmm. see that ranking there is very hard. It's a very hard keyword to rank. If you don't have $100,000 just to invest in SEO, there's no way you're going to rank for that. And also our product wasn't special. It was like everything what was there in the market. And then- Just for our listeners, SEO, which stands for? Search engine optimization. That basically, the idea is that if I want to buy a logo, I'm going to write- logo online or online generator logo something like that the whatever is the search intent of the person mm-hmm. when they want to buy something right you want to target that keyword you don't you don't want when you google you don't want to write oh i know guitar guitars for kids but you're getting a logo generator instead you don't mm-hmm. you, like it sure. has to match the intent of the person right and that's the whole there's a whole science and you can say alchemy and also bs in this field yeah Anyway, so it's a very hard business to enter if you don't have this external investment. It's, and it was quite saturated. But the other market was you can generate the icons. So there's normally, there's a single place where most of these gen- icons are generated, or built, or there's a website called Noun Project, where you can just, yeah, everybody can upload their icons. And if someone downloads it, they get a small price, like mm-hmm. they get a small cut of that to download. So you could say icon platform. Now, the thing is, you can automate, 
that they had kind of the monopoly of all logo generators. All logo generators they use the API from this icon website. And I was I thought, well, why can't we just make a AI generated icons? This was pre-Dali, pre-anything, was mm-hmm. like the period where GANs were popular. And yeah, so before stable diffusion, all this stuff. And uh, yeah, I basically dedicated one year just researching in my free time, like really developing an algorithm to like a generative model for text to vector, where you mm-hmm. you describe what icon you want and you get that vector. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say it was brutal. You could say I did a PhD in my side. Yes. And for me, that was like, okay, if I'm not going to, I didn't want to do a PhD. It felt so unfulfilling from what I've heard from other mm-hmm. people. I can just do my startup as a PhD in worst case, whatever. How abstract that might sound. Yeah, you're not getting a official title, but you're doing the work for a PhD, which I think is the more valuable skill set you learn from a PhD, I think. Mm-hmm. So once uh, I re- I researched, I managed to develop an algorithm which w- worked well, where you can describe your icon and you generate an icon. I published and I tried to do a startup with this. Mm-hmm. And this was like the first actual startup which actually got traction called Bezier AI. Um, Bezier stands for Bezier curves, mm-hmm. which are used to describe vector graphics. So vector graphics are not images like pixel. They are described through functions and spline and curves. So it, you can describe it through math. And because it's described through math, you can scale the images as much. They don't, they're not limited by pixels. So I published on Twitter like a GIF of how the tool worked, like a demo. Adobe contacted me. It's like, hey, this is cool stuff. We want to buy it. They, we, I had to talk with um, like the vice president of engineering of Adobe and some other people. And the idea is like, okay, good. Looks good. Whatever you did now, that's amazing. We can, you know, fur- further work on it. Integrate, mm-hmm. Let's integrate it later on Adobe. And yeah, that was like kind of the idea behind it. But before that, I, ha- I had to pass a technical interview, which makes fair. That makes sense. Like, uh, are you like bullshitting? Are you BSing about what you're doing? Is it just voodoo voodoo or you actually know deep learning, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So I went to the interview and the interview, there were two people. One was a, let's say the head of AI, the lead researcher, and then some hiring manager. And the, I prepared, I re- really like took like two weeks to read everything, even stuff which I forgot. Like, for example, Wasserstein loss in guns. Mm-hmm. Like, why is it like that? You know, what is the mathematical reason behind it like i really went deeper like when it comes to general deep learning and also stuff related to nlp and vector stuff because mm-hmm. i would expect that in an interview you would ask me about my knowledge about vector no and maybe nlp because it's like text to image mm-hmm. and stuff like that Makes and sense, of yeah. course generative models focusing on generative models i would assume and uh interview went great in the beginning I dis- they asked me like, like, what's the latest paper you read? I was so ready for that question because I read like all the papers from the lead AI researcher. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I was ready to be put on the test. And he said, like, yeah, that was fine. You know, I explained the paper well. And we talked about like very complex stuff. And then the hiring manager, like we were talking about like LSTMs and like uh, state space models. And then like the hiring manager, yeah. And the mm-hmm. hiring manager interrupted our discussion. It's like... So do you know what's a Markov chain? Mm-hmm. Do you know what's a Gaussian distribution? It's like, dude, I really felt like kind of disrespected in that moment because like we were talking really, you know, from the quite advanced stuff. And then this conversation started towards computer vision. And like, I, I kind of know the basic of like, you know, com- convolutional networks and like guns, but I'm not like an expert in computer vision. Like I don't need to know this for, because I'm working in vector space, not an mm-hmm. image space. So there was like a mismatch of what the management said, like the hiring uh, the vice president of engineering said, hey, check if, you know, he knows the skills of doing machine learning. And then hiring manager, oh, I have a job opening for a computer vision expert. Let's just hiring this person instead for this position. So mm-hmm where just wasn't aligned. I wasn't prepared for that. They didn't hire me. And you know what? I was first, I was very sad. One week or two weeks, I was very sad about the whole situation. Um, but in the end, like I was actually quite grateful because it was an offer which I could not refuse. I could not say no to it. Mm-hmm. And 
I think I would have been stuck in like in the corporate environment, vested, trying, you know, the golden handcuffs of trying to get that uh, stock money. And I'm kind of like retrospectively happy about it. But in that moment, I was pissed. I was angry and sad because like, yeah, it's like just wasted interview. Mm-hmm. And in the end, like, okay, good, whatever. It didn't work out. You could start, take that technology, you know, and build a startup out of it. But I felt like a bit tired because I, I prepared so much for the interview, learning all the advanced stuff again. And um, I needed a break from this mm-hmm. why I'm talk- Why am I discussing my life story here is because this is where Clean Voice comes in, okay? So just shortly before we maybe go exactly to Clean Voice, just, just to get it right. As you said, like, I completely understand the disappointment. And obviously, like, as you said, you have been successful building, let's say, your first product. It was, uh, it was developing well, if understood it. <clears throat> before then Adobe was approaching you. And then I can understand the disappointment there that they did not value in many ways enough of what you were able to, to give them, what you would have been able to bring to the company. <clears throat> but how was it for you? Because you already said this, this, because you started out wanting a business and they were suddenly then approaching you to offering you an employment again. And you said like you would not have been able some way to resist the 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 benefits or the resist the offer in many ways and i could imagine as well i I see this like with other people as well like often as you already said before if you would fail with a startup you would have at least learned something and i think like many people as well you said like it's a certain level of like in your curriculum it's definitely not a bad thing to have let's say started a startup has developed developed certain things even if it would not have been successful so just to get this point to understand your perspective now as you said like as you have then gone through let's even like after first up a second startup so from your perspective if someone has a similar experience so building the startup they see maybe okay it's going it's going well or it's maybe it's going not that well and then again they will be probably approached by companies or other ones who want to hire them and get them back to a type of normal contract like of work from your experience looking back at this experience would you would you have some recommendations for this scenario uh, to be honest that's a, every person they should decide themselves i cannot give anyone recommendation if they should like if you get approached by a big company and they want to buy you, I don't think that's a bad thing. Looks good in your CV. Like I like if you feel like you don't want to deal with the the drama and like trying to build a startup, it's not easy to build a startup. You have to mm-hmm. learn more other skills than just AI. It's not enough to know AI. You need to either you have like a team of people, I guess, and take take VC money and then you can build a startup. But Let's be honest, startups are brutal and not necessarily better. It's, you could say, you could arguably say they're worse, objectively speaking, financially. I don't think that's the smartest advice. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, if you go bootstrap, maybe, yeah, it's more brutal because it's more work, but at least you don't deal with the drama of going the VC route, which I wouldn't say VC route, you could argue is like as bad, is horrible <laughs> for like mentally, like a lot more effort for the founder. So I'm not sure. It's really individual. I don't think it's bad to get accept an offer. There, I I'm not like pro entrepreneurship or anything. It really depends the person. I'm not sure how to answer that question. Sorry, Manuel. Mm-hmm. No problem. I can, as you said, definitely. I can imagine that this being a very individual decision. And as you said, like there are definitely pros and cons to, to the two. But then maybe return to exactly your second startup, right? Which is in many ways, as you said, like has been motivated in part or after your experience you had with Bezier. So after with Bezier, I took a two-week break. And with Bezier, I noticed several things. Yes, there is a market for it. I got multiple approach. Hey, where's the API? Would like to pay for it, etc. The But there is several things which were unclear from the market perspective. In the end, there was a demand, but maybe there wasn't really a product market fit. But there is another thing which I noticed. Mainly on Bezier, I mainly worked alone. I had a friend of mine who did the landing page at what he did. But I asked him, like, hey, can you please you know, be more involved with this? I really need help with the AI part. And on the side, he was um, doing his PhD. It's like he wasn't so deep in machine learning. But, you know, I can teach you everything. I can just, you know, come along, let's dedicate some time because we still have a lot of machine learning experiments to do. If It would be great if I can offload some of the work because there's a lot of effort to do for a single person, especially mm-hmm. uh, for this kind of problem. Because if you want to build a business, you have to do the marketing. You have to, you have to build a business model, try to talk with customers, validate. And 
also do AI research on the side. It's just a lot of effort for one person. And I realized that maybe the, there's a market for this, but I think it's not a good product to build for myself. So mm-hmm. there wasn't a founder product fit here. So I was thinking, brainstorming, what kind of startup could I build, which I can run by myself, which is like relatively low AI research, relatively low resources. So I don't need like a lot of money to build an algorithm, like a generative model. I was spending like hundreds of euros every month just on training models okay. with Bezier. Yeah. So I was burning a lot of, I mean, not a lot of money, but for me, it was a lot of money. Um, and I was trying to think, okay, well, let's do something smaller, which I could run by myself and also could make money. Mm-hmm. So I had a list of ideas. Mm-hmm. I, when I have ideas for startups and machine learning, I write them down. I always like uh, have a list of random startup ideas. Not sure if they're good or bad. I just write them so I, because mm-hmm. the idea comes and you forget it and you never know again what you thought about that. So I write them down. And one thing I noticed, which I always was thinking on the side, was clean voice. More specifically, I started a podcast with a friend of mine on weird applications of AI, which was called Weird AI. And yeah, we talk about, let's say, AI in agriculture, what AI in anime, like just uncommon applications than what you hear on the media. Because media, they always talk about, oh, AI in manufacturing, like, oh, boring, you know, let's just random stuff which people normally talk about. Mm -hmm. Researching for the before the podcast was easy. We would just Google, make some sound of some papers, learn, read about it, and then make record it. Recording was also easy. However, editing was horrible. Mm-hmm. It took me for a half an hour episode, like three hours, even four hours, just to edit it. Now, what is there to edit? Well, you can add an intro song. Okay, that's not so much effort. You can maybe cut some, make some structural changes of the podcast. That's also, let's say, take some effort. But what I was mostly doing is just removing uh, uh, and uh, horrible. Mm-hmm. Just removing all those filler words. I don't have experience in audio or broadcasting. I didn't work on a radio TV station, neither my friend. And it was... You know, very hard to listen. You have to remove the filler words because else it would not be enjoyable at all. And I really felt like, okay, we I should build an AI to remove those filler words. I should build an AI with remove these filler words. Now, the good thing, I tried Googled if there is a service which can do that. There is a service called Descript. It's a video editing tool. It can also remove filler words. However, first of all, it didn't work so well on our voices because we're both not native Mm-hmm. British speakers or you know so that was not good and also especially for my colleague he had a very strong Ukrainian accent he's a Ukrainian and you know you could hear the Ukrainian in his in his voice so it's mm-hmm. not easy to remove his filler words as well so I thought okay let's build an algorithm on our own data which is two hours three hours of recordings and okay. try to create like a basic product not product just like algorithm which can detect the filler words so i can remove them and i can waste less time editing podcasts and i have an algorithm i trained it it worked okay for our voices great and then i tested that algorithm on other voices and it also worked so i felt like hmm maybe there's a market for this and after the two like when i took a break i worked on clean voice i tried to make a prototype in two weeks so the mm-hmm. first week I was just reading about audio processing, everything about audio. And then the second week I built the prototype. It worked for our voices. And then I went online on some Facebook groups like, hey, I built this filler word remover. Um, see if you like it. See if it works for you. I got a little feedback and that's how Clean Voice started. Okay, nice. I mean, I can definitely relate to your pain of like manually removing filler words and, and doing the post-processing in podcasts. It's something that really, really can take a lot, a lot of time. I definitely see the value there. And as I've told you already of Mike, I've been trying your your service and it worked very nicely for the episode I tried with. So great. And I think as you said already, it's I think it's, as you mentioned, I think it's a very important point that you said that you started with your own 
in many ways internal motivation for a product like this and that you are like in many ways you have been your first customer in some way and then being able to evaluate like like one set of performance but as you like then be able to relate to the pain that others or their potential customers have or would have right exactly and that was definitely something which i was searching so if you read about bootstrapping and indie hacking, trying to do your stuff by yourself, it's very often, if you look at the successful ones, they're always doing a problem which they had or an experience. And it's, why not? Why not you do startup with your own problem? Because you kind of, yeah, sure, you don't know exactly what your customer is, but you're like, because you're one of the customers, you can build a decent product and understand the pain of the customer. You're interviewing your customers more easier because you can relate to them. So I think it's a very good way to start up a podcast, podcast, but also podcast, a <laughs> startup by yourself. Definitely. Then maybe I want to <clears throat> go a bit back to what you said that you said a bit earlier, which was about like working in many ways, starting a, an endeavor which is feasible for a single founder. Because to be honest, like it happened to myself, and I think there are many other people who always, to some extent, had the excuse, oh, I, I'm by myself, I may be alone. I cannot start a startup because like, to be honest, like as you already said, even if you do bootstrapping, so even if you do start without like having an investor coming in at the beginning, there's often the recommendation, okay, you should get at least two or three people together, people with a technical understanding, with a business understanding, someone with a marketing and, and similar things. But then together as like a, a small group, a small team, you start this endeavor. But as you already pointed out, in contrary to many ways, you started alone or you had like for a busy or someone else who did part at least contributed to the project so from your experience can you talk a bit a bit about this this on one side is i think it's more common type approach when you start with a small team where you can see often people like even over this is at the university level similar than getting together getting into for example type of something a support network of their local universities and similar and then starting the product compared to what your was your own experience and maybe as well like other experience of, of individual founders who started um, the startup. I mean, it's not bad to do in a team. You, we always hear the magic formula, the, the hipster, the developer, and you know, like the free people, as you said. And I also started for university. Like there was this program in my university called Accelerator, Academic Accelerator, sorry, called Grundusgarage. And I learned a lot of stuff there in that, in this accelerator. But it's not really accelerator. It's more like you go to some lectures and that's about it. So I wouldn't compare it. And I mean, not, the thing is, starting like a startup alone is brutally hard. And you have to, you have to be realistic about these things. I had some skills from the other which you need to make a startup like for example i knew i learned about seo i learned about how to like graphic design i i have a lot of skill sets which i've developed over the years and i've developed at a relatively young age just staying in my room alone and learning and developing the skills and sure there are a lot of shortcuts you can do especially nowadays things with graphic designs and stuff like that can be automatized, but get learning like what you need to do in business, the essentials, like what do the customer, how do you price your product? There's a lot of things you have to learn from the business perspective that maybe it's not that bad to start in a team first, because especially you have some competent people, like you can build some with free people, you can go very far, very mm -hmm. far in your startup career. So I don't think it's bad to start in a group and doing alone. I think it's I wouldn't, not sure if I would even recommend it to someone. It's just brutally hard and it's just sad because you, you don't have someone really to share your pain. If you're in a team, you can, you know, communicate and work together. So starting a startup alone, I don't think it's something which I would recommend to other people. It's the path if I chose, which I want to take, but I wouldn't, I think going in a group, it's better and you learn quicker. Mm -hmm. well, if you learn more from the business perspective, you learn from the graphic perspective mm -hmm. and you as a developer, let's say as a technical side, you learn what is needed in the product from your other teammates. Combination of people is where the knowledge is. So yeah, I think that's my point here. Mm -hmm. I can completely relate to that. As I already said before, I think it's in general recommended. 
going this path, combining exactly the expertise from different people <clears throat> in order to have this in many ways, as well as support network within the team. But can you maybe tell us a bit about, or let's say, or your listeners, do you have some guides or some recommendation if you would try to do it solo, if you ever decide, if you would be a single founder, that you'll be pointed out that it makes sense to, on one side, understand the mini really problem that you want to solve. It's good to have like basic understanding of some of the other fields like marketing, like customer interaction in many ways from the business perspective, obviously, which I guess it's difficult to get, but in many ways, right, you can still sit down, you can, you can find stuff on the internet, you can piece by piece get to know these things. Um, I, in this sense, I would be just interested if you send some additional recommendations of how people should think about the challenges when approaching this, when doing this alone, how to, to maybe ease their, their pain and ease their, ease their path as well. And then in addition, which I think as well, you could highlight, how would you represent then your, yourself and your startup towards the outside world? Because I think it's much easier. You can often hear this when you, when you talk about investors and similar, if you have like three people or you have multiple people, right? It's, they can, it's easier to, to, for art, for the external world to have trust in the startup because like there are multiple people behind it where when you're an individual, as you already said, like it's, it's much more responsibility and much more weight on your shoulders. Okay, I'll try to answer all those three questions. So the first one, you you can't you don't need to do it necessarily purely alone. So when I started Clean Voice seven months later, I found this website called Ramen Club, which is basically a community of founders. Most of them are bootstrapped and maybe solo or they're in small teams. And just by being part of community of people just doing stuff alone or like solo founders, like someone who's going through the same experience or similar experience like you is definitely definitely helpful. And I learned a lot through other people, like also IndieHackers.com. That's also a great website where you learn about indie hacking and just like learn from people who are in your stage or similar the path or the path which they are taking like you because if you look at all those startup books and i read so many startup books it's like a lot of them are focused on vc founding startups you know get an idea raise shit ton of money go public or go bust one mm -hmm. of the two options anything else is not possible we don't understand anything else except these two things so a lot of books are not helpful but i did read some books which definitely helped me to understand and overcome this hurdles of running your startup solo the first company first company first book is called company of one that is a book for focusing on bootstrapping solo etc the mom test which is recommended by a lot of startup founders definitely helpful it's a book to understand your customers to validate your idea and i think it's a very short book you'll be done in the afternoon you and if you don't want to buy the book you can find summaries all over in the internet, very mm -hmm. There is another book which I have to reference quickly. Give me a second. This is a, a book from Arvid Kahl called Zero to Salt, which is a story of a founder who ran a more or less solo a, a startup and he shares his tips and experience of building it and also selling it. And when I got stuck, like especially in the first months of Clean Voice, I wasn't sure what to do. And this book helped me to find the solution quicker. Mm -hmm. So these are the materials. And then regarding the community part, there are several communities you can join. I've mentioned Indie Hackers. I mentioned Ramen Club. There are also other ones. I think Indie Worldwide, I think is another one. And in worst case, just look, your, look at your local startup community. There are surely people in your area. You don't need to don't need to even join an online one just in your community if there is one just join that one so it's definitely more helpful to work together from a community perspective because mm -hmm. you can get feedback and help more quicker than being purely alone and not talking with anyone except your customers mm -hmm. makes sense and as you already pointed out, maybe one other thing is exactly this, the interaction that you do then have, like, as you said, even if you do bootstrap, so even if you don't get investment money in some way, you do, right, talk to other people, potential customers and other people. How do you in many ways then you know, represent 
yourself or your company as i said before like often um, as you mentioned before there's this this ensemble uh, or this group of free people that uh, try to convey many ways uh, like trust and as well like resilience of the company how do you do this as an individual i think it's an advantage if you're a solo so i don't think it's bad if you're a single person to convey trust i don't, I don't think that affects it at all most titles like are like you always see in these pitch decks like there are three people they just have an idea, just barely made the product, and they're like CEO, CMO, CTO. It's like, dude, what CEO? You're you you're you're just three people who did build a startup here and you made a minimal viable product, and that's about it. Does that convey trust? No, definitely not. What convey trust is more person who actually experienced the pain. So for me, I am a podcaster myself. I know the pain of a podcaster. I am definitely more approachable and more likable by big entities, which are behind like a big logo. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely helpful to be like in that regard, because you can approach people directly. You can, and people are more forgiving. And there are always people, especially our early adopters, they are willing to work with you and they're curious about new technology. So trust, I think, is not like a big issue in the beginning. As long as you are willing to listen to your customers, then I don't think there's an issue with building a trust in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Good to know. And maybe one thing that you already mentioned before as well is a bit of like what you what you can outsource and what you think you should be we should try to do yourself, right? As you already said, if in like the later stage of companies always recommend that you say, okay, what you keep inside is like your core business, your core competency that you want to keep and the other things you can outsource simply with you optimize in many ways. What is your perspective and on, on something like this as a solo, as a single founder? Because you, as you said, right, there are there's a certain amount of resources that you have available and they're very limited, right? And so... How do, how do you spend those resources in many ways? What do you try to outsource? As you said, for example, like using maybe like work platforms, like some freelancer platform or some other things where you, for example, outsource some logo designs, what I did personally, for example, for the podcast and similar, instead of sitting there hours, hours yourself trying to build something, which you probably know that someone with a bit more experience can do much faster, much quicker. I'm not sure what's the right answer here because I wouldn't call myself a very successful founder by any means. So there are surely people who are more smarter to answering this particular question. So I will tell you what I do, and you can see it as a good thing or as a bad fit. This is just how I deal, how I do work. So everything what they do, I first try to learn it by myself or learn from a different person. So for example, I'll give you one particular example. On my website, I have a lot of animations. What I've did is that the first animation on my website, or I built by myself, I learned how to make animations, how to design it, everything. I did it once, and then I've documented the process. Once I documented the process, I also knew how to communicate to outsource that work. I know what I need, and I know how to then communicate to the, to the artist to do it well for me exactly to my requirements. So I know, okay, I need to build a storyboard. I have to write descriptions. Here's some reference material and so on and so on. And by already documenting the process by building it once, I can go, I go to these outsourcing platforms. I give the description, I give the budget and it's done exactly as I want and also very well. And yeah, that's how I deal it. Now with SEO, I didn't know how to do it. It's very, it's very hard to learn. And I still don't know shit about it, you could say, compared to an SEO expert. But first, I outsourced SEO. So I paid someone to help me out, give me, explain me also a bit, but also write me the first two articles on Clean Voice and just the basic idea of it. And also on the side, I was learning by his work and also me learning more deeper in the subject, etc. And also did like, I think, an online course once and... That also was a bit helpful. And now I'm like, okay, good. Certain things I can now outsource since I've the process of how I do it. Certain things of SEO and I'll automate. So for example, if I want a blog article, I will write the outline. I know what keywords I want to target. I know I can do the keyword research and see how much volume there is for that keyword and if I can rank for it. And I can provide all that information then to a writer who can then write from my outline, et cetera, all the whole article. 
So that is one example. So I think it's like, just do it yourself if you can. If you can, do it yourself and document the process because then it's easier than to outsource it. Mm-hmm. Just one task at a time. You don't need to outsource the whole thing. Like if you outsource the whole SEO for agency and you never try to figure out how they did it, you're very dependent on them. You have no clue how they did. And if you leave, if they leave you, you're like uh, clueless, you know? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think that's a very interesting and good recommendation, definitely. But then maybe let's come to, to some of the parts which are let's, let's very specific and very tech heavy in many ways, right? Where you said you have your expertise, for example, in like you said, machine learning in building those, those models, training those models um, in order to achieve the goals. Can you help us a bit of understand your perspective on, because we talked about this off mic as well, like your perspective from going from scientific publications to something like a first viable product in many ways. So, right, this is definitely a challenging path, right? To take up a paper, maybe a paper with a bit of code and stuff, and really to go out there, maybe reproduce the paper, as I said, like get the data that you need in order to do do things. Um, This is not an easy task. Can you, can you, for our listeners, maybe explain a bit like your experience there and maybe some of your, what you say would, would definitely would things that make things easier going this path and maybe things that people should definitely try to avoid. When I started with deep learning, PyTorch wasn't even like a big thing. It was kind of like a niche thing. It was only TensorFlow and Keras, everything. And a lot of the publications didn't have code. It was just the paper and that's about it. And it was very painful. I remember the first real paper I had to implement was called, I don't know the paper, but the algorithm was called DAGMM, which is like a deep autoencoder, which then does Gaussian mixture modeling on the embedding space. So like a clustering of the embedding with a autoencoder. Back then, a novel idea. Now, I don't think it's even relevant, but I had to, I had to implement that paper. When implementing the paper, TensorFlow so, like, sounds like a relatively easy algorithm to build. In TensorFlow, it was pain in the ass. I, it took me forever to write. And the reason is because back in the day, if you want to do matrix inversion as part of your loss function, mm-hmm. it just was not the way you think it would work. It, wasn't, it just didn't work the way you thought it would do. And there was no documentation about it. It was very hard to really learn that thing. And yeah, it took me a while to figure it out. And after like two weeks of suffering, I managed to make it work and even managed to reproduce the paper results. So I downloaded the data set and got like kind of the same results. So I was then happy. Now, today, things have changed. We have a lot of libraries for developing machine learning algorithms. And it's very often that people also publish their code and also Mm -hmm. some pre-trained weights and also the reproducible results for the data sets, et cetera. So I don't think you don't need to really put yourself in this huge pain, developing everything from scratch. And you could argue that in a lot of fields, it's anyway, everything is just a transformer or a diffusion model or et cetera. It's kind of like becoming, how can we find an algorithm which works for all problems? Mm-hmm. It feels like nowadays. And in that regard, if you look at the algorithms we have today, you don't need to modify them too much in order to solve your problem. So I'll just give you one example. Let's say I want to do Bezier. I want to build Bezier. Well, what can you do? Well, you just have to basically, in essence, you have to do representation learning. Like nowadays, all you have to figure out is just representation learning. How can I make an embedding from my data? Mm-hmm. If I want a text embedding, yeah, I can use a BERT model and I can get an embedding from a text. If I want embedding from an image, I use a CNN. If I want to have from a vector, well, in my case, you could use T5. So I like also deal with text or you do a hybrid text with uh, CNN. There are a lot of ways to, or whatever data type you have, you can figure quickly a way to encode it into an embedding. And mm-hmm. a lot of the cases, it's quite obvious how to do it. In audio, well, you can, for audio, you have multiple options. You can do it as a spectrogram, aka images, images, mm-hmm. CNN, get embedding. If I want to do, and just pure audio on the raw audio, well, okay, that's a sequence of numbers. Again, CNN or even transformers, maybe. In that mm-hmm. regard. So you have a lot of, options in that regard and i don't think nowadays you really have to build anything 
from scratch. You just have to learn how to modify current architectures for your problem, which means that the skill set you need nowadays is to be to understand, able to understand the code in the GitHub repo. So if you understand the code itself, like how the tension is written, how how the code, why is written like that way, and mm-hmm. you can just modify it for your particular use case. It can be something simple like just, oh, removing the output layer and putting a, a different classifier or maybe take the output of that and send it to a different model as an input. Like just simple stuff like this, just mo- managing to modify these individual lego blocks together to Mm -hmm. build a custom model it already will bring you quite far and the potential is still kind of unknown what we can still do with it so when you want to start i would say a business all you need is just whatever's out there and Mm -hmm. just have a better data set or modify whatever's out there and combine in a smart way to solve a problem so that's Mm -hmm. how i see it nowadays and how you develop the skills well you just Start by read, trying to take an easier algorithm, understand the code, and try to train on it and modify it and experiment. And later on, yeah, go with more complex, complex model until you can just read state-of-the-art papers and uh-huh, I get it. Okay, this is what they changed. This is the only unique stuff about it. And also checking the code for, okay, I kind of know how you can write it and done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, interesting. I mean, I definitely agree that there is more and more in some way certain amount of extraction abstraction happening where you can say you then you are concentrating on combining those elements like having the different modules as you said using existing libraries maybe as well like directly using some existing services as there are more and more apis right services exposing different functionalities and do many ways you're combining them but then from your experience as you already touched a bit upon it right what about the data or the role that the data that you then need in many ways for the particular service, right? If, if you said like, if you're doing some kind of fine tuning on top of something which has been existing there, you still, right, you fine tune it on your particular problem. What role and uh, do you think then exactly this particular data has? In addition, right, in many ways, is this, from your experience, is this then many ways data that is exactly not available to others so like in many ways your business like your case is exactly that you have access to some amount of some data that is not available to the rest or is it the way that you maybe have been filtering the data which is out there in the wild or have been modifying it some way what is your perspective and you think is then the role exactly of, of, of data in such a world where you are more and more focusing on using and combining existing elements Data is definitely the most important factor of all of it. If you want to do something in medical space, you will quickly observe that the public data sets which you could use are very limited and very small. So having access to that data is already 80% of the work. Let me give you one example. So let's talk about the transcription space. If you look at all the startups in transcribing audio to text, in essence, what they have is just huge amount of proprietary label data, which they label themselves. Maybe they download YouTube videos and just outsource the labeling of those audios to other people. And they have these huge data sets, which they then train, guess what, on whatever's out there. They're not really even doing like, oh, custom architectures. Yeah, maybe they do like slide modifications, but not or like, oh, how can we do data augmentation or stuff like that just to make it more performant? Like just like things you can think, okay, how can I take this base model and make it better? Just something you can figure out by yourself quickly. So they're not doing, a lot of these startups are not doing too too crazy stuff, just having huge amounts of data and showing whatever state of the art. That's literally a business model for a lot of companies out there. Mm-hmm. And so the hard part is always figure out how you can get the data. Sometimes it's impossible. If you do medical space, I have no clue how you can easily get that data by yourself. But when you consider it making your startup, you have to think, can I first get data? Second, can I label the data? Do I have the domain knowledge to even label it? Mm-hmm. And if you say yes and yes, good. Is there an easy mode you can take to validate, make a prototype out of it, right? And if you can do that, then yeah, go for it. Then it's technologically possible. Now mm-hmm. that said, you don't even need too much data. That's most of the time, also, most time you can get away with little data. Since if you leverage pre-chain models, well then yeah, perfect. And less effort in that case. Perfect. 
And maybe one other aspect that I wanted to ask you beyond the data or besides the data is in many ways like the computer computer possibilities because right we see a lot of we see the models getting bigger and bigger in many ways we do see open releases of models right and and certain exceptions so, uh, because for example with Stephen Diffusion as well there's been something that you can run in a certain extent on limited hardware hardware which is the consumer available but on the other side right you you see at least like for the large language models which nowadays for example have this gigantic impact on like what what seems to be impossible a few years ago now you can solve in many ways querying these APIs. From your perspective a bit, how do you see then entrepreneurship in many ways? To me, it feels a bit like either you have like this one extreme where you have really small models, as you said, you focus in many ways on the data part and then you ship it off to maybe in a side some kind of external service which you which you leverage for your product? Or do you think there's still a possibility to in many ways build these things in-house use them in-house or is this something that, that you should avoid at least at the beginning very much and really make sure that you have a good market product fit know what 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 you want what your customers are willing to pay for what you can leverage what you can really use before then go and say okay maybe it's more like an optimization process much, much later that you said you bring this stuff in-house instead of leveraging um, external service leverage everything you can because in the day you you're trying to build a business the machine learning part is just a tool but it's not the main part, right? If your customer, if it doesn't solve your customer problem, it doesn't matter if you build a crazy machine learning algorithm. So leverage everything you can do to build it in the beginning. So I'll give you one stupid example. Let's say you want to do, okay, let's say you want to, given a, okay, here I have an example. Let's say you want to analyze the sentiment of customers on the platform. So let's say you automatically parse all the reviews and you want to extract, let's say, the most important keywords and the sentiment about it. What you could do is you could leverage first just GPT-3. You can do few shot learning and use it to predict the labels in the beginning. And you can also label by yourself some of those examples. And with GPT-3, you can leverage to even build more examples. And then you can take that to, as your prototype. And then later on, if you see there's a need of it, then you already have more data and then you can fine tune something smaller, let's say something like a T5 model or something like this. And then you have an in-house solution for that particular problem. So if you can leverage something outside then of course use it. And then later on, when it becomes more critical for your company, then costs become relevant, et cetera. And later on, you can bring it then into your own model. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I would actually more move it like towards the end of the episode and I was wondering, is there something that you think that we haven't touched, which you think is really essential uh, to like thinking about entrepreneurship in, in, in the AI space? I mean, there's a lot of opportunities out there. Like one example we've seen the last month, which you could say is like a small hype with the stable diffusion. We still just scratch the surface what we can do with it. There was this person you may know, Levels IO. He, I think he's the founder of nomadlist.io. He built a avatar in stable diffusion. So basically you put some pictures, send it to them, and they will basically create like these AI avatars of yourself. And uh, he made like what, $200,000, $300,000 in, within, <laughs> within a short amount of time. And there's a lot of other ideas like, oh, let's uh, scan, let's take pictures of your product. And then we make a stable diffusion for your product so you can make product artwork for your company and so on so just a lot of potential out there you just have to find a problem and you can solve it with relatively not much effort so yeah sure you could think about more fundamental models which like which can maybe bring more money but there are a lot of like small ideas niche products you can build with whatever's already out there and maybe now this is like this this is like the golden age of low effort, high return startups. Mm -hmm. I compare it with 2008, 2009, where everybody made a to-do app and they made like $100,000 with their basic to-do app. And this is similar to how we are in AI. There's like this golden rush of like, yeah, maybe not long-term, but definitely short-term possibilities where we can make AI startup with relatively low effort. And mm -hmm. uh, there's also place for the small guy. Later on, not so much. 
I understand. It's actually interesting because that's one would have been one of my closing questions from perspective on what the future of, of tech entrepreneur or entrepreneurship looks like. And I think you answered this already very much with your comment here. But it brings me actually then to one other thing I wanted to ask you, your perspective things in the sense what i see there's a more and more a move to a more descriptive like in tech in general and, and when you think about like how things are implemented in many ways the to more descriptive type of nature of implementation so of many more of, of no code low code solutions where, where as you already said right you have the possibility to to textualize like a lot of what, what in the past have been manual works development work setting up for example cloud infrastructure there, there is more and more we move to like many ways and infrastructure as code and similar solutions, right? Where you where you said, okay, in form of of a textual description, you 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 can you can automate things. And I was wondering, in in let's say in many ways, thinking about the large language models that we have nowadays, right? And they're getting better and better and better. In many ways, I, I was thinking exactly about this point, as you said, about we are in the golden rush in many ways in, in in AI entrepreneurship. So I was so my question is like, what do you think will be the stage where you can say that you as an entrepreneur can leverage something like a next version of a chat GPT, for example, that is where in many ways you are brainstorming with this thing about like what would be an interesting product and what it can even do automatically is what it can generate you some procedure description there, which automatically maybe even like really does things like deploy something in the cloud, does an API queries and produces some kind of results, given that you, for example, have a certain amount of data or similar. We're already seeing the democratization of AI. Think of, and it's going to be easier and easier. And regarding your example with ChatGPT writing you some code and you deploy it, there's already founders already doing this. They're already implementing, using these services to build full-fledged software. I think even saw an example on Twitter where someone built a Chrome extension purely with ChatGPT. So <laughs> it's already here. And... AI will be democratized. And what does it mean? Basically, it will be cheaper for anyone to use AI. Think about it. Before Scikit-Learn, the library came out, what do you have to do? Well, you have to write your own machine learning code. It was painful, took a lot of effort. And then with these libraries, anyone could train basic machine learning, classical machine learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and okay, how do I do deep learning? Well, okay, who's going to write the infrastructure code to run it on a GPU to make it efficient. Well, some companies out there offered us some open source solutions and now everybody can train deep learning algorithms and this will be easier and easier where you just think about what you want and the AI does it for you. So it's like how GPSs were in the back in, I think like in the seventies, I know exactly it was like GPS module cost you $150,000. And now my phone has a GPS and I could buy the cheapest phone and the GPS is quite decent. So it's the same thing. It's everything is going to near to zero and there are going to two ways it will, go, will end. Either it will be centralized AI or there'll be a lot of grassroots projects where it will be decentralized. So everybody can have access to the same resources without, let's say, a governing body controlling the AI. And also, we still have no clue how society will change. We already seen some societal impact with chat GPT, for example, kids using it in their assignments, etc. Mm. We've seen how people are changing their behavior. Maybe that's not the right term, but let's say their, their interaction with technology has changed a bit. Just with chat GPT, it just shows that how humans are changing themselves to immerse themselves deeper with the technology mm -hmm. and also becoming more dependent. This is like the kind of the first time where we are offloading the decision process with an AI. And I noticed myself when I was just playing around with ChatGPT that I can interact with it. It's not like, oh, I'm using, like before, 10, 10 years ago, I was using Google as my way to offload memory. In essence, you could say I was using Google as a database and my mm -hmm. brain was just keeping the embeddings <laughs> and somehow keeping doing embedding search. Yeah. Yeah. Indexed, yeah. That's how I use like an external offload of the information. I just need to know the reference. That's all I have to keep in my brain. And now it's like, I'm not only keeping the references, but also doing also partially the thinking, like the off this interactive communication of 
trying to come to a solution with the AI or even not thinking at all. Just I have the thought and it's already thought for me through. So this is something we have still no clue as a society how will impact. I am generally a pessimist on how these things will (laughs) just uh, how capitalism growth works that I I only see dystopian future. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so we it's hard to tell like what is like in one year in the future ahead how AI technology startups will look in the future. If there isn't even AI startup, like if chat GPT-4 or GPT-4 comes out and they assume it's 10 times better, well, 10 times better of what we have now can have a huge tectonic shift on how societies can work. Mm -hmm. And it really gives a lot of power to certain entities so yeah sure okay agent stop boring me with this philosophy philosophy philosophical stuff and social economical issues well sorry mate but it's not far in the future that these things we have to consider when we're building our companies and Mm -hmm. and also we as individuals so it's (laughs) i kind of just in essence we don't know what the future holds since we already seen we already got a taste of it how much it changed we don't know I, I see. But I think this is very interesting. And I think you brought up many interesting parts. Uh, and I really hope as well, as you said, like, although I can definitely see that there can be many ways things can go wrong. And it's obviously, I think it's, it's the, the, as you said, like being for maybe a more, uh, more less hopeful on the outlook of how things might be going going to happen. I do hope that there's going to be space for, as you said, like grassroots movements. I hope there's going to be space for for the continuation of like the entrepreneurs, individual and small companies operating in the space and, and being at the end benefit society and not being something that hurts and in a way society on the long run. But with this, I, I think uh, it's time to close the show. I think this has been very nice and last words on it. And I want to, again, want to thank you very much, Adrian, for coming on the show to share your experience. I think this has been really great tips that you gave us and like how people can approach the entrepreneurship, how can they approach the aspect of like maybe founding a company by themselves. Thank you for having me. <laughs>